Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Well, here we are. You made it. You're here. Technically, I'm not here, um, but I'll get to that in just a moment. I probably think there are a couple things that need to be explained. The first thing is my facial hair. Yes, I shaved the beard off. Um, It's gone, but I want you to know that it's still me. Um, So you can get past it. I'll just, I'll say this one time just for everyone's sake. Um, I'm your huckleberry. There you go. All done with that. Now we can move on to the next thing. And the next thing is, um, why am I on video instead of having one of our other pastors preach this Sunday? And I will tell you the reason. The reason is this. Um, After hearing Marty Sloan preach last week in this new series in the book of Judges, I begged the team to let me get an opportunity to preach in this series, and this was the only way I was going to get an opportunity to do it. But I'm so excited about what we're going to discover in the book of Judges and what God is saying to the nation of Israel. Now, I know that some of you are thinking to yourselves right now, um, hey, I could just do this at home if we're going to watch video. And you're thinking, if I get up right now and I slowly sneak out, nobody will notice. Because I could do this at home. I see you. I see you over there trying to sneak out, Pastor Pete. Just stay a little bit longer. Now, here's what I want you to know. You can't actually do what we're doing here today at home because you're in the room with a bunch of other people, and that's called fellowship. There's an opportunity to be together with one another, to encourage one another, um, to um, hold one another accountable. The conversations you're going to have are opportunity to worship corporately together. You don't get to be in a celebration service like this with the body of Christ at home, even if there's a video element included in that service. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're present, and I'm praying that you get everything that God intends for you out of today. So there we are. Without any further delay, we're going to jump right in. And I want you to know, last week I noticed several of you with your Bibles and with notebooks taking notes. I love it. You're taking up the challenge one month with a Bible in hand. You can do it on a device as well, but taking notes and then seeing if you don't get so much more out of a Sunday and you hear God speaking to you personally as you're writing things down and reading the scriptures for yourself. So good on you. Here we go. Today's title is Nailed It, and we're looking in the book of Judges. Ultimately, we'll end up in uh, chapter four in the book of Judges. But I want to start with a little segment I'm referring to as your own personal Jesus. Hopefully, for those of us who were alive in the 80s, there's a song rolling through your head right now. But what I really want to address is this issue of truth or reality. Because we have a tendency in the church to view our relationship with Jesus as unique and personal, which it is in many ways, but it is also universal in the way that Jesus approaches us. And I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but I have, uh, that the world would be a much better place if people would just do the right thing. It sounds 
simple. It sounds like if everyone would just do the right thing, then the world would be a much better place. But you have to ask the question, who decides what the right thing is? We live in a world that says that's your truth, but it might not be my truth, that truth is a relative thing. And in that sort of world, ultimately what ends up happening is that individuals do what they believe is best, and we may strongly, we do strongly often disagree on what those things are. In fact, if there's no objective standard of right and wrong, then there actually is no such thing as right and wrong. And truth, at the end of the day, might makes right. Whoever's the most powerful, whoever has the loudest voice, whoever has the most money or the biggest army, they're the ones who get to determine what right and wrong is. And this is exactly the place that the nation of Israel finds themselves. There's a phrase repeated in the book of Judges multiple times, and the phrase is this. It actually really defines what's happening in the book of Judges. In Judges 17.6 and in Judges 21.25, it says this. In those days, in the days of the Judges, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. It's interesting because it doesn't say they did what seemed wrong, They just made their own determination about what the right thing to do was. And it could have been motivated by selfishness. It could have been motivated by delusion. But everyone simply did what was right in their own eyes. And what it created for the nation of Israel was chaos and ultimately destruction. In fact, in Judges chapter 2, verse 10 through 15, it's described in this way. After that generation, the generation of Joshua died... Another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. Verse 14, he turned them over to their enemies all around and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned them. What you need to understand about the Lord is he isn't ultimately wanting to simply destroy Israel. He's actually attempting to bring correction to them. And the only way to do that is for them to understand that they have deliberately chosen to step out from under the umbrella of God's protection and provision through their disobedience. Which brings me to the little foxes. Several years ago, actually when I was um, uh, in my early adult life, I came across a passage in the Song of Songs, this book about love and romance and what it's supposed to look like from God's perspective. But it's a really simple passage, and it struck me years later, its implications in my own life. It's Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15, and this is what it says. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. Catch the foxes for us, because the foxes are actually going to destroy something that's really valuable to us. These foxes would come in, and they would eat at the roots of the vines in the vineyard. They would peel the bark off. They would eat off the limbs, but they would ultimately destroy the vineyard. These seemingly small things were going to have a radical impact on the harvest in 
the vineyard. And it dawned on me all the way back then that I was at war with an enemy whose goal was not little failures. His goal wasn't these small sins that I found myself stepping into, these little temptations that I found myself giving into. He actually had an ultimate goal that was much, much bigger than that. He was playing the long game, and these seemingly small indiscretions were actually going to turn into something much bigger if I didn't pay attention to them. It's kind of like the story of the frog being boiled in the water. He's placed in the water while it's cool, and it's slowly heated up, and ultimately it's too late when he finally realizes that he's being boiled alive. That's exactly what the enemy is attempting to do in your life and in my life, because his end goal is your total destruction. In fact, the more people he could bring along in that destruction, the better. He might be willing to wait until you were in a position where you had more influence or you were married and had children who were watching you, but he'd be willing to wait because his ultimate goal is actually complete and total destruction in your life. And when we don't pay attention to these seemingly little things, we have to acknowledge that we are allowing him to play forward in that goal. It's worth paying attention to those little things. And what you have to remember is that God is bringing the nation of Israel not into the promised land for the first time. He's actually re-giving them the promised land. In fact, he had already given them the land all the way back with Abraham, and it belonged to Abraham and to Isaac, and then in Jacob's generation, they're actually led out and go into Egypt, but now they're actually returning to the land that the Lord had already given to them. They're actually reclaiming something that already belonged to them. And so the Lord gives them this instruction in Deuteronomy 7, 2 through 3. When the Lord your God has, made, has handed these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them, make no treaties with them, and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. So the Lord says, when you come into the land, you're to drive all of the inhabitants of the land out. Do not make treaties with them. Do not let them remain in the land, because I'm telling you what will happen. Ultimately, your sons and daughters will intermarry with them, and ultimately their hearts will be led away from me towards worshiping those idols. That's what's going to happen. And like a child who doesn't believe the direction of a parent or the outcomes that a parent describes, Israel does not believe God. So in Judges chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, this is what it says about the nation of Judah. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath, and they devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Eklon with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. It sounds like it's going so good, but... He could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Imagine coming back to the Lord and the Lord asks the question, so why didn't you finish the assignment that I gave you to drive out all the inhabitants of the land? Oh, that's right. You couldn't do it because they had chariots of iron. I've discovered over the years that there is a rather fine line between could not and would not. Often when I hear someone 
tell me, I couldn't do it. And I ask a few questions and you discover that you actually could do it. You just didn't want to pay the price that came with doing it. The truth is that the Lord was very clear with them. I will drive out the inhabitants before you. He didn't say, I'll drive out the inhabitants before you unless they have iron chariots and then I can't help you because God had actually delivered them from a nation that had iron chariots before and he had drowned the entire army in the sea when he delivered them from Egypt. So they have some evidence that God can defeat armies with iron chariots and yet they actually did not want to take the risk. They actually began to function out of fear rather than faith, but God had told them already that they could do it. And I wonder this, how often have we settled for what we could accomplish rather than believe God for what he said he would accomplish? How often have I looked at a situation and I've said, oh, I can't do that in my own strength, rather than leaning into the promises of the Lord and recognizing that he has already told me that he will accomplish that, but I've settled for less than what I was created for because I couldn't accomplish it in my own strength, rather than believing God for what he said that he would accomplish on my behalf. And now, for Israel, an entire generation has passed away, and the next generation is going to inherit the failures to accomplish God's mission that their ancestors left behind. In fact, these things are going to come back to plague generation after generation after generation. Judah says, we can't take the rest of that country. They have iron chariots. Now listen to Judges chapter 4, verses one through three. The Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hesereth. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. What if Judah had believed God in his generation and he had stepped into the promises of God and what he thought he could not do, he was willing to step into because God said he would do it on their behalf. But instead, he does not take the land and he leaves the next generation to deal with the iron chariots of Sisera. Remember that thing that you thought was impossible for you to accomplish? Well, now that thing has actually become a real problem for you and the generations to come. That thing that you said, oh, this is just a small thing. It's just a little bit of lust in my life, and I know how to manage a little bit of sin in my life. It'll never turn into more, but I'm just telling you, the enemy's playing the long game with you. Those things in our lives that we look at and we say, that unforgiveness, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, I'm not that angry at them. I mean, I can be in the same building as them, and yet that unforgiveness will turn into bitterness, and that bitterness, according to the scriptures, has the potential to defile many. The enemy isn't satisfied with this unforgiveness. What he ultimately wants is you consumed by bitterness and anger, or that small addiction. I can't tell you how many people I've met with and I've prayed with who have said, I thought I had control over this. This is legal for me to do, and yet they find themselves in a place of addiction and cannot even parent their own children anymore because the enemy's ultimate goal is not the small addiction. It's your ultimate destruction and the destruction of everyone in your orbit. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine. Which brings me to nailed it. 
If you've seen the reality TV show, which my girls thought the bits of episodes that they saw were hilarious. It's actually about um, these people who are in a reality competition, and in the competition, they're trying to bake a cake that looks identical to the cake that has been presented to them. And so there's three amateur bakers, and they are supposed to replicate these complicated cakes and confectionery in order to win $10,000 cash prize, and uh, the nailed it trophy. And it's hilarious. And I'm not saying I could do any better. I'm certain I could do worse. But I've got a few pictures for you here. The first one, you can just see um, the cake it was supposed to look like. And then also there's the cake that was created also. Like, it's just horrific. Here's another one, the cake and what it was supposed to look like. And then here's what it turned out like. And then this last one, I think is my favorite. Here's what it was supposed to look like. And here's what it actually turned out like. Nailed it, not, right? The whole goal of the competition of the show is not to come up with your own idea or your own creation. People could probably do a pretty good job of that, but it's actually to accurately mirror something else that has already been created. Now, now here's the question. One person may say, well, that looks just like that cake. But the question is, who gets to decide if it is accurate? And that would be the judges, which is why God brings judges to the nation of Israel. Because in the days of the judges, everyone in Israel was just creating whatever they thought looked right. And they needed someone who would objectively step in and help them delineate between right and and wrong in their lives. And God, in his graciousness, invites the judges to come in and do that. Judges chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, listen to this description. And the people were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judges' lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. Now, by the time we get to the story that we're going to be telling today, there have actually been four judges in Israel, Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. And now we're going to look at a judge named Deborah, a lady who was judging, a prophetess who was in the nation of Israel. Here's how the story begins, Judges chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Judges 4, verse 3. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, the wife of Elapnadoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day, she sent for Barak, the son of a Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon at Mount Tabor, and I will call out Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. Now, here's what the Lord says. There I will give you victory over him. And Barak told her, I will go, 
but only if you go with me. Can I just pause there for a moment? This reveals something in his heart. The Lord has already said, I will give you victory. I'm giving you a command. I want you to go. He's going to come out with his iron chariots. You're going to take 10,000 men, but I am giving the victory into your hands. And instead of trusting the word of the Lord, Barak says, I will, if you're willing to go with me. Now, the Lord could have just put his foot down at this moment and said, I will not negotiate with you over this. I've told you what to do. If you're not going to do it, then I'm not going to deliver your people. But the Lord doesn't do that. The Lord actually allows for this caveat. Very well, she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture. For the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Listen, Barak, the Lord wanted to bless you, to give you honor, to raise you up to a place of leadership, but because you're unwilling to do what the Lord has asked of you, what's actually going to happen is that Sisera is going to be defeated ultimately at the hands of a woman. Now, here's what's interesting. That woman is not Deborah. Sisera is on his way. He hears that Barak is coming. He gets all 900 chariots together, and he heads into battle against Barak. But God is with Barak, just like he said he would be, and they defeat Sisera's army. They kill every single soldier except one. One escapes, and it's Sisera himself, the commander of the army, and he is on the run. He's a man on the run. He is hiding from Barak. He realizes the Lord has brought victory to them, and he is doing whatever he can to save himself. And so as he is on the run, he comes to the tent of one of the ancestors of Moses, brother-in-law. Judges 4, verse 17. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor, or at least for now they are. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come into my tent, sir, come in, don't be afraid. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. Come on in, you don't have to worry, I'll hide you, I'll protect you. He says, please give me some water, he said, I'm thirsty. So she upped it and gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes and asks you if there is anyone here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. Then she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and, well, so he died. Duh. Like, you talk about nailed it. She nailed it. And not, not just, like, because that's kind of funny. But, but in reality, what this woman does is exactly what God had called the nation of Israel to do from the very beginning, to drive everyone 
out and she has the faith in this moment, this woman by herself at her tent, separated from the community, believes that God could ordain this moment and she could join him in what he is doing and see freedom and liberation brought to the people of Israel. So Barak's army makes it by the tent eventually, and as they swing by, she comes out and says, hey, fellas, let me show you something. I've got the guy you're looking for. He's right in here. And so verse 22, when Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. She said, come in, and I will show you the man you're looking for. So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with a tent peg through his temple. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king, the one all the way back with the chariots that Judah could have driven out way back then. But now is the moment through the faith of Jael, and he has been defeated. And from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. I'll tell you, this is the question that has been rolling around in my heart and mind for the past couple of weeks as we've been looking at coming into this series in the book of Judges because they've allowed these seemingly small things to remain in the land that bring destruction over and over and over again. They believe that their common sense is better than obeying the command of the Lord. They believe making alliances with the enemy is better than actually eradicating all of it from their lives. And this is the question the Lord's been asking me personally, and I've actually been taking action in specific areas in my life in relationship to these two questions. And the first one is this. In what areas have I settled for less than what he saved me for? In what areas of my life have I simply said, that's far enough in growth? That's mature enough. I can get by with this much discipline in my life. I could leave this much sin in my life. I could not completely obey the Lord in this area. But the real question is, in what areas have I settled for less than what he saved me for? In what areas am I missing out both now and in eternity? eternity celebrating. What areas am I missing out on because I settled for less than what he saved me for? That's a question worth giving serious consideration to in your life and in my life. The second question is this. Am I willing to take the next radical step of obedience so that I could experience his supernatural deliverance? Because sometimes, I dare say more often than not, these steps of obedience that are going to lead to supernatural deliverance from the Lord are seemingly radical to us, maybe even to those around us. You may have people in your life who say, what kind of fruitcake are you? Are you a goody two-shoes? Oh, really? Uh, Look at how holy you are. But I actually don't give a rip what any of them think because what I want to experience is freedom in my relationship with the Lord. And so am I willing to take the next radical step of obedience so that I could experience his supernatural deliverance? So I could experience something that maybe I could not do, but he's told me he would do if I would say trust him. That's it. Those are the questions I think 
you and I need to take away this week and be prayerfully considering? And what areas have I settled for less than what he actually saved me for? And what is the next radical step of obedience that I could take that would bring me into a place where I would experience his supernatural deliverance in my life? So Jesus, my prayer for my brothers and my sisters, for those who are either watching online or in this room right now, is that you would speak the answers to those questions. For many of us, it it came immediately. As soon as we heard the question, we knew what some of those things were, but you know what all of them are, and you know the freedom that you've called us to. And so may we refuse to settle for less than what you actually saved us for, that we would fully experience your deliverance so we could fully enjoy your relationship to us. I pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, God bless you, church. Let's worship together. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.